Welcome back, everybody, to Refuge. This week, we have Pastor Eric. Hello. Uh, we actually started the show with your message, because you started off the Messy Church series, but we couldn't get you on due to your agent saying you were busy. <laughs> that was an accident, actually. I wasn't supposed to be week one, but due to life happening and mm. adjustments, I was thrust into week one. So here we are. Well, this week we have a, uh, let's see, how should we say, heavy uh topic or Fair section yeah. of, of Corinthians, if Corinthians hasn't already been heavy enough. <laughs> um, but before we get into all of that, uh, let's just go into a little bit about you. Okay. Um, how long have you been with South Shores? I've been with South Shores five years this June. Okay. Um, how did you get here? Other than a car. Funny enough, I got here because South Shores was looking for a referral. Hmm. One of our deacons essentially was calling me because they had been given my name as someone who might be able to refer them to a, to a youth pastor. Hmm. And in, in doing so, in that conversation, uh, it came up that I have had been a youth pastor for almost 20 years and had a lot in common with the person I spoke to. And push came to shove. They interviewed me. So hmm. that's how I came to South Shores specifically. Gotcha. But you also have a long time history. Yeah. I tripped and fell into youth ministry, local church ministry, or you could say it more spiritually that I, the Lord called me into it. Although hmm. I didn't know it was being called number one and number hmm. two, I didn't realize I was being called until almost three years into it. Oh wow. What had happened was I had quote unquote felt a call to go into volunteer junior high ministry. Gotcha. And I say quote called because I was following my then girlfriend at the time mm. who was also volunteering in the junior high ministry. Funny how that works. And, um, but no one at the time at my church wanted to be in the college ministry. It wasn't really cool. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there was a bunch of young people serving in middle school. And so I jumped in to do that. Went with them to all their summer camps and summer events that summer. And at the end of the summer, the youth pastor pulled me aside and he goes, Hey, here's the thing, Eric, you've been really great this summer, but I'm getting moved out of middle school into the college ministry. Would you help me run our middle school ministry until we find a youth pastor? It should be just like three, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks. Mm -mm. And I said, absolutely not. No, thank you. I was going to community college. I had a mm. girlfriend. I had no interest in local church ministry, never considered it. Mm -hmm. And he said, would you just, just, just do me a favor, do yourself a favor and talk to the Lord about it for a week. I said, okay. And I did. And as much as my brain at 18 could communicate with the Lord, I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And I just felt the Lord saying, what do you have to lose by exploring this area? And so I went back to the guy and I said, okay, I'll do it, but I'm not excited about it. And he goes, great. Well, long story short, that turned into a two-year stint of middle school ministry, where at 18, I began leading a, a middle school group of 80 people, 80 kids, 20, 30 leaders. And it took them over two years to find a youth pastor. Wow. Meantime, I found myself preaching the weekly messages on Wednesday, on Sunday, writing curriculum, training volunteers, taking them to camp. And I didn't know that I was doing it, meaning it didn't feel like work. Mm -hmm. It, I didn't, I felt excited about doing it. I loved seeing the kids 
meet Jesus and experience life change and grow and have their minds be changed and then be changed. And so where this came to a head of me recognizing God might be in this was at the end of two years, they were, they'd found a youth pastor. At that same time, there was a church in Costa Mesa who was looking for a high school director. So I'd been a middle school intern, right? and now they're looking for a high school director. And I said, I asked them, why are you calling me? And they said, well, we'd gotten word that you've been running this ministry for two years, that this might be a great... And I said, well, I'm not really doing this. I was just helping. And they said, well, we'd like to interview you. And it was at that time that I realized, wait, Lord, are you in this? Are you... Is this what I'm doing? Because I thought I was going into the fire academy. Right. Because I didn't want to go to school a ton, and I wanted to help people. I thought, hey, burning buildings, that's great. And I took that position, and that snowballed into Bible college, 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 and ministry. And that was, that began in 1994. Gotcha. So, and within about five years, I was in, I was full-time youth pastor um, overseeing middle school and high school, and there's only been a year in ten. No, there's been a year in ten months since then that I haven't been in local church ministry. Hmm. Um, that's another story for another time. But um, that's all I've done for my awake life, and it's what I feel God has called me to, and what I. Until he says otherwise, that's what I'll be doing. Gotcha. So before we jump into the message, um, we're obviously kind of bouncing back and forth through the different sermons from the Mercy Church series right now. So for context, before we jump into your message, what do you have for us there? Well, Paul is dealing with, as the title of the series says, Paul's dealing with specific problems Mm -hmm. in the church. And he's dealing with problems that, yes, the Corinthian church had in that ancient time, in that ancient place to those specific people. However, he's dealing with problems that is very, very common to the human experience. Mm -hmm. And because of the the subject matter is uncomfortable, our inclination is to distance ourselves from it. However, the Lord is still speaking to us today through his word Yes, by means of Paul's letter to this group, but there's so much, if not all of it, that can that's directly to us, even though Paul's letter was to the people in Corinth. Mm-hmm. And so there is an ancient way to interpret this, but also there's a 2022 way to interpret what God is doing because God's truth doesn't, doesn't change. Right. Here's the message from February 20th from Pastor Eric. Good to be with you today. My name is Eric. I'm our youth pastor. I oversee middle school through young adults, but I'm glad to be with you today. Hopefully you feel the same when we're done, but the chances are not good. Um, We're talking about something that is difficult. And the passage we're going through, this, this chapter can really come across as harsh. I don't want it to, but it's just the way that it is. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. You might see it on the screen too. Don't you realize that those who do wrong won't inherit the kingdom of God? 
don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. I think maybe the harsh part about that is in verse 11 when Paul says, after this whole list of things from adultery to homosexuality to cheating, Paul kind of points his finger and he goes, some of you guys were like that. And that can hurt. But Paul's pointing out that some of you used to sin in all these areas where God has called his people out of. And I'm imagining what it was like on that first Sunday that the church, the house church in Corinth got Paul's letter and read it out loud. Maybe they'd been all excited because they'd gotten an actual writing from the apostle Paul and there's all this hustling and bustling and as they start to read, it gets quieter and quieter and quieter and more awkward and awkward and awkward. And that could happen today as well. Because if Paul were here today, he might look around this room and point his finger at some of us and say, some of you have indulged in sexual sin. It wasn't an accident, you planned it. Some of you have worshiped idols, you've put things where God belongs. Some of you have cheated on your spouse, you made a promise, you broke it. Some of you have handled your sexuality in ways that go directly against God's commands. Some of you have practiced homosexuality even though it goes against God's word. Some of you have stolen from others. Some of you are greedier than a Washington politician. Some of you have been drunks. Some of you have been abusive to your spouse. So Paul says all these very painful things and it can sound harsh, but he added something in there that's very beautiful in verse 11 when he said, some of you were once like this, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. All humans have had these failures of sin. But Paul says, if you give your life over to Jesus as your king, you, when you stop that old life of sin, you can be washed. You can be cleansed by Jesus. And what Paul's really pointing to is forgiveness. Spiritual cleansing. It's being set free from sin and then intentionally walking away from that life walking away from temptation, walking away from the behavior that brought with it shame and guilt and death. And yes, it's very painful to be exposed, but then it can be a beautiful thing if you realize that in spite of your past, you can be made clean if you come to Jesus in repentance. And I understand that that is very, very difficult because turning to Jesus requires giving him authority and setting aside the authority all of us desperately want for ourselves. And that's why today's passage is gonna be very tough. Our passage, and literally all of God's word, draws a very distinctive line in the sand. And Paul's already covered this subject, but apparently he needs to cover it again, and I think I know why. Because when scripture draws distinction, it does so in areas where people don't want rules or regulations. 
And God in his authority, he has determined what's right and what's wrong and what's correct. And many of us don't want to submit to God's authority. We want to be our own gods. We want to determine right and wrong for ourselves. So I've been reading a book lately called Faithfully Different, and this author's done a great job helping me understand kind of what's happened in our culture in regards to how people are thinking, especially when it comes to seeing right and wrong and authority. She describes it this way. Our culture has been sort of tricked. Our culture has been seduced by secularism. Our culture has been tricked into ripping God out of our culture, ripping God out of government, and ripping God out of our bedrooms. And Natasha in that book really talks about how our culture is addicted to self-authority. And this isn't new, really, but maybe it's more all-consuming than it's ever been. And the youngest people, the TikTok generation, is the most susceptible to it. But 100% of us can be lured in to the temptation of godlessness, self-authority. And really, we've been sabotaged by the lie of self-authority. This woman, the author notes, four main ways culture now thinks about authority. The first one is this, feelings are the ultimate guide. Feelings are the ultimate guide. Follow your heart. Only your heart knows what's right and wrong, what's true or good. No system or religion or culture can be your guide. Only your feelings. Do you feel it? Chase it. If you feel it, it must be good. Does your body want it? Listen to it. That is the TikTok generation. The second thing she's noticed is that happiness is now the ultimate goal. Honor is gone. Faithfulness, out the window. Tradition for old people. The question now is, what makes me happy now, this minute? If it doesn't bring me immediate happiness, I don't want it, they think. The third thing is this, judging is now the ultimate sin. We can't judge people as doing anything wrong because they themselves get to determine what's right and wrong. And instead of sin being sin, the real and nastiest sin is now, wait for it, judging someone's behavior as wrong. And the fourth one she notices is this, God is the ultimate guess. They speculate, you don't know that there's a God. And if there's not a God, he's not in charge. And guess what? Now I am and I make the rules. So with those ideas in their minds, it's just like a toddler left alone over a three-day weekend (laughs) with no authority, no boundaries, no protection, no limits. Things end poorly. And this lie, this feelings fallacy, and this self-authority sabotage was alive in Corinth. It infected the culture, and it's leaked into the church even today. But it's not a new concept. C.S. Lewis, in fact, wrote about this type of thing in his book, The Four Loves. He said this, every human love at its height has a tendency to claim for itself a divine authority. Its voice tends to sound as if it were the will of God himself. It tells us not to count the cost. It demands of us a total commitment. It attempts to override all other claims and insinuates that any action which is sincerely done for love's sake is thereby lawful and even meritorious. Lots of us have fallen for the lie that we have to have what we long for or else we die. 
We have to have what we long for or else we're not truly human, the lie goes. But Jesus showed his people a different way. John chapter six, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the bread of life, it's not physical bread. Our deepest need isn't physical. Our deepest longings are met through salvation by Jesus. Jesus is the deepest need a human has. Nothing else can fill it. But oftentimes we don't want Jesus. We opt instead for our own self-authority even if it destroys us. Here's where Paul gets to correcting the Corinthian culture in verse 12 when he quotes a saying in Corinth, all things are lawful for me, so would they say. But Paul says, no, not all things are helpful. Now they're saying, all things are lawful for me. But Paul says, I'm not going to be dominated by anything. And then another one, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And Paul adds, God will destroy both one and the other. And what's happening here is two common Corinthian phrases, really. Um, And remember last week, if you were here, Pastor Ron mentioned a common saying in that day and age, which is to think like a Corinthian which is to show how low they were thinking. And Paul's going to kind of take these popular phrases and debunk them. The first one he gets to is the all things are lawful for me, which is really just saying I can do what I want within reason. The Greek mindset would be something like, if it doesn't hurt anyone, if there's consenting adults, and it doesn't control me, my body can do what it wants. And second, food for the stomach, stomach for food. See, the Greeks often use food to describe urges that the body has. And these sayings really highlight the perspective they had that when you die, nothing happens. You just become worm food. There's no eternity, they thought. So in their mind, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. Use it, abuse it, have fun with it. And this was so pervasive that many Greeks even believed sex outside of marriage was fine as long as it didn't control you, okay? But here's where it's going to get difficult. Paul is going to make a declaration in this passage that goes against everything our culture believes. Here's what Paul was really saying. In spite of what your culture says, in spite of what your heart might tell you, in spite of what the internet says, any sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman is wrong. It's against God. Then they give it a fancy name, fornication. Fornication comes out of the Greek word porneia, which really just describes any illicit sexual behavior outside of what God has said is good. This would include adultery. This would include sex before marriage. This would include sexual, uh, homosexual behavior. This includes pornography. This is any sexual activity that's not between one man and one woman within the context of marriage. And guess what? This didn't align with Greek culture. For most Greek men, sex was widely available outside the home. Local taverns and hotels and temples were quite literally stocked with humans, with prostitutes who were mostly slaves, who were often purchased when they were abandoned as babies. And these people would end up being bought and then used for the physical pleasure of their patrons. And the thinking in in this area 
was so bad that some people even considered sex with a prostitute as a helpful deterrent to adultery. Okay, carry the one. I don't know how you got to that, but they got there. And why? They had a disconnect. They had a disconnect between their bodies and their soul. They had a disconnect between the God who made their bodies and his commands. They had a disconnect between where they saw others as utensils to be used and just thrown away. See, Corinth had put their sexuality in a category where, God, you don't get to be in charge. Guess who's in charge now? Feelings. And their version of happiness. That's the authority now. And that is the self-authority sabotage. And it causes carnage in the church and in families still today. But Paul's going to shine a light on who truly has authority, even if we've convinced us that it's us. Look at verse 13 at the end. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. See, Paul's just restating the opinion of Jesus, the opinion of the apostles, and the opinion of the entire Bible that the human body was created by God and it was not designed for sexual sin, but for holiness. Paul's also saying, your body is not of zero consequences. What you do with your body matters. Your body is part of your spiritual existence and it matters what you do with it. And I think that's why Paul brought up resurrection in verse 14. He's trying to point the Corinthians to the reality that sexual sin messes with the new life that Jesus died for us to have. And so I think Paul would say something to Christ followers then and now. You might see these, these couple things. When we give in to sexual urges outside what God has said is good, we separate ourselves from Jesus. When we condone sexual behavior outside what God has blessed and ordained, we scoff at Jesus as our Lord and our boss. When we celebrate a sexual lifestyle outside what God has blessed and ordained, we are attacking the resurrection life. We are living as God's enemy. And in chapter five, Paul dealt with a very unique sexual sin where a man had a sinful relationship with his father's wife. But Paul's going to get now to a different sexual sin that wasn't unique. Instead, it was rampant in Corinth and it was affecting the church. Look at verse 15. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or don't you know that he who's joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. <laughs> he started off saying, don't you know? And apparently they didn't. And that's still true today. Now, I wasn't alive in the 1960s, but I've read about it. Apparently, there was something called the sexual revolution, where people began chasing what they thought was freedom. They, they were pursuing what they believed was liberation. And they did that in the form of any sexual behavior that wasn't normal or ran against biblical values. And one of the mantras of this movement was free love. 
<laughs> free love, that sounds great. Sounds good on the surface. And it was really this social movement that advocated all twisted versions of love. And the goal was to really separate the government from sexual matters. Get the government away from things like marriage, from birth control, monogamy, adultery, all these things. This is only the concern of the people involved, the consenting adults. No harm, no foul. This is definitely Corinthian thinking. And this free love continued in different forms all throughout the 70s and into the 80s where it hit a speed bump. Acquired immunodeficiency syndrome suddenly made people panic over free love. Because it turns out, devastatingly so, free love wasn't free. There's a price to it. All sin has consequences. It has consequences in eternity, and sometimes it has consequences right now. And in spite of what we want to believe, and in spite of what we tell ourselves, love's not free. Sexual expression always costs something. So Paul's simple question, don't you know, was actually very powerful. Don't you know, Paul said to them, when you use a prostitute, that's not a consequence-free thing? Don't you know there's no sexual activity that's consequence-free? Paul's saying, as God designed it, sexual union creates a spiritual bond between people. Don't you know that? Paul's asking them, when someone uses a prostitute, they become sort of wedded together, even if no vows were exchanged. Now, the guy involved might be thinking, yeah, this is definitely a temporary thing. But it's not. There's spiritual, there's a type of spiritual fusion going on. One commentator said it like this Every sexual act between a man and a woman, whether licit or not, fuses the partners together into one flesh. There's no such thing as casual sex that has no enduring consequences. Our world doesn't believe that. Corinth didn't either. However, if you're a child of God, you need to believe it. You need to surrender to his authority. If Christians are to be in Christ, they can't have compatibility with sin. They cannot be an advocate for what God has called sin and Jesus died because of. But get at what Paul's saying. Sexual sin's also unique because it has a spiritual component to it. When we sin sexually, we're not only sinning against God, we're sinning against our own bodies and souls. Now, if we flip that around, when we honor God with our sexuality, we can find blessing and we can find actual freedom either in godly marriage or in singleness. I've brought this quote to you before from Christopher Yuan. He says it like this. You might find it on your screen. God's standard for every Christian is holiness. Regarding sexuality, it's either chastity and singleness or faithfulness and marriage. Those are your options. Paul has another don't you know question here in verse 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul's saying, don't you know, follower of Jesus, that your body is a location where the Holy Spirit has set up shop if you're a Christian. Just like the church is a place where God's spirit makes a home. So your body is a place, if you're in Christ, where God's spirit makes a home. So if you give yourself over to sexual sin, you are profaning the temple of God's spirit and you're rejecting the new life God has given you. 
And then Paul, in this passage, he borrows imagery from the ancient world slave trade, which is terrible to think about. This wasn't like the slavery that existed in our country based on skin color. This was, you might call it opportunistic slavery. Because Corinth was a major hub of buying and selling human beings. So the Corinthians would really understand this. You would have slaves who were captured in war, then sold. Slaves who were orphans and sold. Slaves from people who were in debt, couldn't pay, sold. People were bought and sold like items at a garage sale. But Paul is using this imagery to try to paint a picture. And he's saying to the church, if you're in Christ, you've been bought and paid for by Jesus. And he now has full rights over you. Before you were a slave to sin, now you're a slave of Christ. And the language, as I said, Paul's using, he's trying to be positive, even though he's referencing slavery. And I think it's on purpose because Paul has kind of described this upward mobility for a slave who gets a better life. He's kind of saying, look, you used to be a slave to a horrible, evil master, Satan, who's an, a liar, who's a liar, who's an abuser, who's a no good, very bad master who took from you and used you and lied to you. Now you've been purchased by a new master who has offered to die for you, who's offered to pay for your sin, give you a new life. You'll be a slave to his authority, yes, but he's purchased you to serve in his house with a much better situation, a master who loves you and is offering you the bread of life. You have a master who wants to give you higher status, new duties, more accountability, and you know, you know what else he's gonna offer you? Actual freedom. Self-authority offers you a freedom that was a lie. Jesus offers true freedom. Our world says, chase your feelings and preferences and find freedom there, but that's sabotage. That's the lie of the enemy. It looks great on the outside. It's death on the inside. Jesus says, even if you don't feel it, surrender your life and your preferences and your feelings to me and my authority, and you'll find true freedom, true life. But look at that advice from verse 18 Paul gave. It seems so overly simple. Flee from sexual immorality. We don't really use that word anymore. Hey, do you want to go flee with me later after school? We don't really use it, so I thought, let's talk about it for a second. Fleeing. Here's, here's the bottom line. Almost everyone is going to face, at some point in time, a sexual desire that you can't solve. A sexual desire that you can't express within God's boundaries. Okay, let's talk about what that might look like. Maybe you're widowed and you're lonely, so you're considering a shortcut. Paul has a word for you. Maybe you're single and you really, and I mean really, super duper really want to be married. Paul has a word for you. Maybe you are texting with a friend at work that you're not married to. Paul has a word for you. Maybe you find yourself dealing with same-sex attraction. Paul has a word for you. Maybe you find yourself struggling with smut on the internet. Paul has a word for you. He would say to all of us, any of us facing sexual desire outside God's boundaries, run for your life. And he's not saying jog in a way that looks great on Instagram. He's saying ugly run away like someone's chasing you with a knife. 
Your life is on the line. When you face these desires, don't wait. Don't argue with it. Don't minimize it. Don't reason with it. Don't justify it. Don't rebrand it or modify it or adjust it, excuse it. Run for your life, Paul is saying. And this, not a, that's not a popular option in 2022. Because today, even in the Christian church, there are many voices being elevated, sadly, who are pushing a fresh perspective. That the church, it's so old after all, it needs an updated, modern take on sexual morality. And these voices are advocating us to allow sexual sin into the church and under the name of being progressive and super duper smart. And it's sabotage. This is exactly the problem Paul's confronting here in Corinth. And Paul says, all caps, no. Paul says, run from that. Sin is not Christ, no matter the name you give it. Well, it was sad to think about how old I am when I'm gonna bring up this story. I think it was 2002, or thereby, I had a student who graduated out of high school in my ministry, had been with him about five years, went to every event type of thing. He went to Newport Harbor High School and was really smart. Never studied for a test in high school, graduated like a 5.0. And he applied to MIT as a joke with his friends. For those of you who don't know, that's a super smart college in a really cold part of the world. He applied as a joke, and to prove the joke, he wrote his entrance exam on Spider-Man, and he got in. (laughs) So he moved from Newport Beach to wherever that godforsaken cold place is on the East Coast, and found out he had to study for the first time in his life. He also found that he could be his own authority. He had moved 3,000 miles away from his parents, his church. No one knew that he followed Jesus. He could be his own man. He could make his own rules. He could follow his own feelings, determine his own happiness, and live how he wants. And that was a simultaneously terrifying and exciting thing as he thought over what that might look like in his newfound life. Well, this came to a tipping point couple months into college when he attended a dance. I didn't know they did dances in high school, but apparently they do at MIT. And he found himself doing what people often do at dances, dancing with a girl who was very pretty and who liked him. Long story short, as they were dancing, he became aware of the fact that this girl was kind of into him. And he knew that if he suggested it, she would go with him back to his dorm room where he could be his own boss, write his own system of morality. And he really wanted to do that because she was really good looking and she really liked him. And he kind of was thinking through all these options as they were dancing. And he told me the story later, which is, I guess it's cool, but it's kind of terrifying. He goes, I was dancing with her and I remembered what we talked about in youth group. I remember what you, t- what you talked about escaping and running as the solution. He's like, I remember you saying, don't, don't argue with it, try to make it make sense. Or he, you said that Paul said just to run. And so as he's dancing with this girl, <laughs> they'd been dancing a long time. He just dropped his hands and he ran out of the gymnasium. <laughs> 
across the icy campus to his dorm room. She never talked to him again, but he survived. I should say his faith survived. But some of us might hear that story and think something different. How could you expect that kid or anyone else to live without that part of their life fulfilled? How could you expect a red-blooded American boy to go to college and not pursue whatever his heart and his body longs for? Why would you take that from him? Well, I'm going to answer by reading someone else's answer. This guy, Sam, is a pastor in England. He has been same-sex attracted since he can remember, but he's chosen to live his life single and chaste before God. Here's what he says. You might see it on the screen if they find it in time. Jesus, in his teaching, shows us what the center of our humanity is. It's the fact that we've been created for a relationship with our creator. He tells us that he is the bread of life. He is what our hungry soul needs to be fed by, not romantic fulfillment. That's not going to feed our souls. It may be a great gift if enjoyed in the right ways. We're told about that in the Bible. But actually, if we think sexual or romantic fulfillment is going to make life complete, we're putting a burden on those two things they cannot possibly bear. This is why we need to keep hearing the words of Jesus. He's the bread of life. We are created for a relationship with the God who made us. So don't fall for the lie. Don't fall for the self-authority sabotage. Instead, surrender to Jesus and his way because his way leads to life. Well, one of our members here at South Shores is a really smart guy. His name's Sean McDowell. He's written a lot of books. I've only read one of them. It's called Chasing Love. And he posited in this book what our world would be like if people actually obeyed Jesus in this area. Like, what if? What what, what would that be like? And he made a list. He goes, following the sexual ethic of Jesus would quite literally transform our world for the better. Here's what he said. There'd be no victims or users of pornography. There'd be no sexual trafficking or abuse. There would be no STDs. There would be no rape, no pregnancies outside of a loving marriage, no crude or degrading sexual humor. There would be no abortions because even an unplanned for child would be cared for by his parents. There would be no pain from divorce. There would be no deadbeat dads. There would be no prostitution. There would be no men who leave their wives for younger women. There would be no adultery or the devastation it brings to its families. And then he finished with this. Living the sexual ethic of Jesus brings true human flourishing. And the reason is simple. Following Jesus puts us in touch with reality. There's a physical reality and a spiritual reality. And it's only when we align our lives with both that we can truly be free. So let's finish out with this question. Is it possible to live in 2022 to live out the sexual ethic of Jesus? If you look on Instagram, the answer would be no. If you look on TikTok, it's emphasized all caps in bold, no. It's not possible. Well, this week as I was preparing, I looked on my bookshelf and I found this very old book which was published in 1929. And I know in our day and age, old things are automatically done and dumb. But I found this was a, one of the most popular devotional books of the last century. 
So I turned to today's date, February 20th, and then I found it was printed in size six font. So I borrowed Rob's glasses. Just kidding, these are mine. Is it possible to do, it seems impossible. I'm not the only one who thinks that. It seems impossible, but here's what we're encouraged on February 20th devotional. It starts off with Matthew 17, 20. Nothing shall be impossible for you. Then it goes on to say this. It is possible for those who are really willing to reckon on the power of the Lord for keeping and victory. It is possible to lead a life in which his promises are taken as they stand and found to be true. It is possible to cast all our care upon him daily and to enjoy deep peace in doing it. It is possible to have the thoughts and imaginations of our hearts purified in the deepest meaning of the word. It is possible to see the will of God in everything and to receive it not with sighing, but with singing. It is possible by taking complete refuge in divine power to become strong through and through. And, and where previously our greatest weakness lay, to find that things which formerly upset us, to be patient and pure or humble, furnish today an opportunity through him who loved us and works in us, an agreement with his will, and has blessed us with his presence and his power to make sin powerless over us. These things are divine possibilities because they are his work. The true experience of them will always cause us to bow lower at his feet and to learn to thirst and long for more. We cannot possibly be satisfied with anything less. Each day, each hour, each moment in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit than to walk with God. And it closes with this. We can have as much of God as we want. Christ puts the key of the treasure chamber into our hand, and he bids us, take all you want. If a man is admitted into the vault of a bank and told to help himself and comes out with one cent, whose fault is it that he's poor? Whose fault is it that Christian people generally have such scanty portions of the free riches of God? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these terribly tough but needful words from Paul. Lord, as a, as a church, as a group, we confess to you how kind of feeble our understanding has been of our own nature and our sexuality. We confess that we give in so easily to the lies of this world. Lord, forgive us, help us to seek after you, guide us, help us to walk in step with you even where we were misstepping before guide us as your children to live in such a way before a watching world how beautiful and great it is when we live your way and help us as we just heard to find joy in it instead of sighing that we can't have what this world offers we can sing that we're living in the blessing of the Lord help us each and every one to find life in you if there's anyone here today who's never surrendered their life to the authority and forgiveness of Jesus may today be that day and it's your name we pray amen And now we're back. Um, so before we jump into some applicational points and things, was there anything that you left out? Usually we try to keep them fairly tight because we have multiple services, but... 
Yeah, you know, there's always things look cut out of our sermons. Um, Ty, Micah, Derek, Pastor Ron, no one doesn't struggle with this. You know, my, my sermons, I try to keep my sermons, this is probably too much information. My sermons, because I only have 30 minutes, my sermons I try to keep about 3,500 words. Mm. Because I know if I have 3,500 words with how fast I talk, I know that I can hit that right at 25 minutes mm. and I have five minutes to add in things that I think are helpful to that specific um, service I'm speaking to and the people that are there. Gotcha. And I like that flexibility. So this message was up to 6,000 words before I had to start chopping it. And it's like losing one of your children. <laughs> um, Derek practically cries every time he preaches of what he has to cut out. Um, but this one was, I won't say easier, but Paul was so broad in his instruction to the Corinthians in his push for sexual purity and God honoring sexuality. Mm-hmm. I think the things that would have that I had to leave out were simply specific ways to get off track sexually. Because as many people as there are in their in the room, mm-hmm. there could be different ways to sin and to get off God's path sexually. And so what would have been left out was maybe just specific ways to to do that. And sometimes when those things are omitted, people feel a little lost or they don't feel validated or they don't feel seen. And so that's where um, I felt like a little heartbreak that I couldn't touch on every single type of sin or every type of of, um, abuse or mishandling that people can be either victims or perpetrators of. But those would would be the things that I had to leave out. Do you happen to have just a handful in your notes left? No, no, okay. no, okay. 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 <laughs> no, just wondering. Yeah. Um, um, we didn't actually get to touch on this before we started. I realized, um, what is, so do you draft up a script kind of like pastor Ty ends up doing with mm-hmm. multiple pages? You usually have an iPad and yep. a Bible with you. So I, I start with like a storyboard. Okay. And I start with a blank piece of paper. Do you draw pictures too? I Sometimes I do actually. Um, but where I start is I start with looking at the passage I have and looking what the natural natural segments are. Okay. And then I figure out how I'm going to break those segments into a sermon, whether it's an introduction, your body, which maybe three sections, mm-hmm. and a conclusion. And how does, how does it make sense to explain this? But then I have to break each of those segments into their individual components, usually each verse. Gotcha. And I have to break down what does each verse say clearly without doing any sort of interpretation. What is it, what is it saying or claiming? Mm-hmm. And I write all those things down. Okay. And as I'm, then I will go to resources and commentaries and things to find out what, what questions are asked in these verses that I need to get clarity on before I can unpack it and explain it. And then I'll write those things down. And it's in this process that I'm usually getting a lot of the outside material, the quotes and the input from out, outside that I'll kind of just storyboard onto this um, paper. Mm-hmm. And it looks kind of like a madman by the time that piece of paper is done. And it's from that paper that I'll use to write my manuscript. Gotcha. And I personally have to use, choose to use the manuscript because A, I don't have a photographic memory like Ron. Uh, but B, I'm constrained to the time and need to know how much I'm going to speak and what I'm not going to speak. Gotcha. 
So uh, I end up using a manuscript, but what I'm what I attempt to do is make my reading of the manuscript be as unmanuscript as possible because I don't like when people are reading to me. Right. I don't like when I, I don't like to be read to, mm-hmm. especially if I have something. So I write my sermon as if I'm speaking it out loud. Okay. Because there's one way to write a, a, a paper for a professor, mm-hmm. and there's another way to write like you're going to communicate to a to a friend at a coffee shop. Right. So I try to write in a very relatable, sitting across from you type of way, um, so that usually when I speak it for the first time, it feels very natural. I don't test it or try it out or practice it. Um, but then when I come to the manuscript, after that I preach it the first time, oftentimes there's things that I feel or I sense or even people's faces, they go, oh, I missed this. I need to add this. In. I need to add something in. I need to drop this out. Mm-hmm. And that's why one of the reasons I use the iPad with this pencil, because I can edit I, and cross out and add in critical things that some come, someone comes up after the first service and says, you, this, the Lord used this to move me. And sometimes they'll say, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to add more on this. I'm going to supplement this more and stand on this area more because maybe the Lord's working there and I want the freedom to be able to, to, to kind of tweak what I, where I see the Lord moving. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so moving into more of an applicational point of this, um, there's obviously a lot, uh, Corinthians is a lot in general. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you say could be a first point of, okay, we, un- we understand it mm-hmm. up here. What's the next step for everybody? What's uh, like a very easy, simple, maybe it's a perception change. Maybe it's a, this part of culture right now mm-hmm. for us. I think what it is, it's it's a conversation that I had in the in the beginning of this sermon where I'm, I talked about how the modern mind, how the average young person, we might say, thinks about this, mm-hmm. where the modern kid has no concept that God is in charge, that God is the boss. Mm-hmm. And so where I think I would push someone to say is, well, before you do any thinking or feeling or reasoning about this, you've got to decide and have a conversation with yourself as to who you believe is in charge. Is it you or is it the God that Eric's claiming, the Bible's claiming is in charge, but Mm -hmm. do you recognize that? Because many people like to nod their head to that at church, but then in practice, they go back and we go back to, no, I'm going to be, I'm going to go ahead and be in charge. And so, um, Paul was really calling us to not be tricked, as I mentioned in the sermon, not to not to fall prey to the the the. It's a back alley sales pitch, like, "Hey, want to buy this at a discount?" But really, what you're getting is terrible. Then that's why I called it sabotage. That when we buy this thing called self authority, that we think we're getting something good, we're getting a good deal. In fact, we're getting sold something that is toxic. Right. And so where we can escape that is saying, finding the freedom where we give ourselves a hundred percent to God's authority, which on a human level is terrifying Yeah, because we're hardwired to think that 
our own personal autonomy is the best thing there is. <laughs> but Jesus's claim throughout his whole mission was to say, no, no, no. You find life when you give up your life <laughs> for me. Right. So that's where I would push people to start thinking. So you mentioned in the sermon as well about a former student of yours. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, did you ever mention his actual name or just... I mentioned his, I think I called him Morgan. Okay. And, but I, I wasn't really, I wasn't able to, in, because of time to explain anything beyond what happened on that hilariously heavy night where mm-hmm. he dropped that girl and ran, ran across the campus at MIT. But there's more to the story. Okay. Um, I, I, there's so much in our pasts that people still carry their wounds with. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to minimize that at all. But I do want to say this one ex- example of this one life in the early 2000s or late 90s <laughs> mm-hmm. where this young man, this 18, 19 year old man, brilliant intellectually, but totally average and normal as far as his desires go. Mm-hmm. And he had this battle, which in that moment he won. But I just, I would love to share what happened when he said no to his desires that night and said no to the self-authority sabotage. And he said yes to God's authority. Because I think it set him up on a trajectory for a God-honoring life, number one, but also sure. a life of flourishing. Mm. Um, he... Graduated from MIT. Okay. Got a great job with a big, big, huge company doing scientific things that I couldn't explain to you. Sure. Um, it involves water, which apparently humans okay. need to live. Hmm. And uh, he's moved around the world. But one thing that happened is he met a, a fantastic woman who loves Jesus a couple years after that. And they started dating and they got married. And long story short, they actually live in Orange County now. And they have, I think, four or five kids. And I don't say that to say that being married and having five kids is the zenith of the Christian experience. Right. It's, It's one type of human flourishing and it's one type of Christian flourishing along with singleness and ministry. So I'm not... I don't want to, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings there, but for this specific kid, Morgan, he's now a husband, a father who's training up four or five more little young people to know and love Jesus, to declare Jesus as your King, to run away from self-authority. And it's, I think his decision on that night was a one step towards a life angled and focused on the Lord. Mm-hmm. And that's how I would encourage our church that even if you find yourself in the bottom of a pit right now and it's pitch black and you feel utterly devastated and without motivation to know that your next decision to say no to your sin, to say yes to Jesus, sometimes those moments can be the first step out of that pit. And so, and the first step towards that life of flourishing, not necessarily with kids, and but right. 
it's flourishing because sin always steals from us. Mm-hmm. And it's flourishing because anytime we step towards the Lord, we find life more. Right. Couldn't say it better. Yeah. That's why you are the pastor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if anybody's curious about what, uh, what it means to be single in the church and everything, just go to last week's episode with Pastor Micah's message. Yeah, those are great. We go super deep into that. Mm-hmm. But until next time, we'll be here. You won't see us. You'll hear us. We won't see you. In the refuge. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs>